if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn it to Titus. You find First and Second Timothy, it's right after that. Right before Philemon, that's not easy to find. Right before Hebrews, find Hebrews, turn left. We're in the book of Titus, excited about it, hope you are too. Uh, I'm excited that the kids are staying with us this morning. I don't have to dismiss any BG kids. You guys are with me, so bear with me, children. Imagine this. You are on the Apostle Paul's ministry team. You are traveling with him. You're carrying letters. Paul's writing letters, and he will send them with you, and you'll go deliver them. That happens in 2 Corinthians. Titus delivered 2 Corinthians. Um, you're, you're helping him preach the gospel. You're helping Paul collect money. And then Paul gets the crazy idea to reach the island Crete for the gospel. Because Paul had crazy ideas like that. This is a Roman province, a mountainous region. It has about 20 cities on an island. It's about 3,219 square miles. Okay, so that's a little smaller than Connecticut. Tennessee is 41,000 square miles. Okay, so this small island is pretty big for an island, but it's not this huge piece of land with 20 different cities on it. And it's filled with mountains, and it doesn't have the Roman road system. So travel was extremely difficult. Not to mention that Crete is filled with pagans ungodly pagans who don't know the gospel. It's not a great culture, and it's also getting infiltrated by Jewish false teachers to glorify God by making disciples on Crete. It's not going to be easy work at all. Paul's not getting the low-hanging fruit here. He's swinging for the fences. And so Paul and Titus go, People get saved, they start planting churches, but the work's not done, okay? So there's all this work to do, super difficult, super hard to travel, swinging for the fences, and then Paul leaves Titus there by himself. Imagine being in that situation. Young believer, and your, your mentor, your, your apostle, you know, the, the hero of the faith, Paul, he leaves. And so Titus, what we're going to be studying for the next seven weeks is a real letter written by Paul to his disciple and co-worker, his uh, mentee, Titus. And the letter is meant to encourage this young pastor to lead this difficult ministry and do things the right way. The question I want to ask at the beginning before we get into our passage is, why? Why is a really good question to ask. Why would Paul attempt this? Why why is Paul saying, let's go to Crete and plant churches on Crete? Why is Paul in the ministry at all? Why? That's an important question for us to ask as a church and as an individual. Why do you do what you do? It's easy to answer what we do and how we do it but why 
Why do we do children's ministry? Why do we do car care? Why do we preach the gospel? As we saw last week, I think our, our big overarching answer to that question, why should be to glorify God by making disciples. That also seems to be Paul's why, and I think in this passage that we're going to read this morning, um, verses 1 through 4, I think we see Paul's why. Why Paul is who he is, does what he does, tries to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. We see it in three points, Paul's goal, Paul's hope, and Paul's gospel. Starting in Titus 1, verse 1, going through verse 4. This is the word of God to us this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of God. Let's go to God now and ask for his blessing upon it. Father, God our Savior, we come before you now, humbly before your word. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. God, I pray that you can enable us to understand it. God, that you can take my feeble efforts and multiply them, not through the power of my abilities, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God, I pray for conviction of sin. God, I pray for repentance and faith, for salvation. God, I pray for, for um, growth, for discipleship in this moment, God, that we can, we can hear your word, not as my words or my wisdom, but as your word and your wisdom, God, and that we can, we can have it transform our lives. God, I pray that we can walk out of here with new mindsets that come from the Bible and new habits that come from the Bible and new perspectives that come from the Bible. God, and I pray that you can use this word for your glory, God. That you can, um, you know, we, t we just had that series about a healthy church. God, but we're still pursuing that. God, I pray that you can make us um, into a church that glorifies you, God. That increases in the knowledge of you. And I pray that it happens now through this word. So you enable us to pay attention, God. We, 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 can, we can drift off. We can think about other things. We can, we can numb ourselves, God. We can, we can just put this off. But God, I pray that for the next 40 minutes or, or however long it takes, God, that, that you will have us absolutely locked into your word, God, because I believe that it has the power to change and transform our lives. All for your glory, God. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Paul's why. Uh, Titus is a short book, like I said just earlier. We're going to be done with this book in seven weeks. If you've been with me for a while, that might be surprising to you. That doesn't typically sound like a, like a mat thing to do, but seven weeks. We're going to be done with this before Christmas is here, okay? Which, by the way, we're about nine weeks from Christmas. Uh, Titus was written probably in the 60s between Paul's first and second imprisonment, so he's not a locked up man at the time. Um, the outline is pretty simple. Here in the first four verses, we're going to see Paul's greeting. 
which is how Paul starts all of his letters. I do want to say that Titus, as a short book, three chapters, is actually the second longest greeting that Paul wrote. Romans is longer, okay, but Romans is pretty unique. You know, it's, it's super long. And, but Titus, okay, Titus is the second longest greeting. He, he packs in a lot of theology here in these first four verses. It's pretty stunning, actually. Then, um, starting in verse 5, all the way through the rest of the chapter, uh, we, we see Paul's instructions to Titus on pastors and false teachers. Then, in chapters 2 through 3, we see Paul's instructions to Titus on how the church should live the Christian life. And then finally, um, in chapter 3, verse 12 and following, we see a farewell. Paul says goodbye. This is going to be super applicable and relevant to our lives. It will change our lives because God's Word is living and active. So we have three points. Paul's goal in verse 1. Paul's hope in verses 2 and 3. And then finally, Paul's gospel in verse 4. Paul's goal, verse 1, let's read it again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now I'm bringing to this text this question, why? But first we see Paul's who. Okay, who is writing this letter? Uh, New Testament letters make way more sense than our letters because we put the person we're writing to first, and then we put our name at the very end. So when you get a letter, you have to go to the very end and see who it's from. Paul just starts off with, hey, I'm Paul, just so you know. So that's who the author of this letter is, Paul. And he describes himself in two ways, as you see in verse 1, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. First, he identifies himself as a servant of God, and this shows Paul's exclusive submissiveness to God alone. Paul's saying, I'm going to do whatever God says. I am God's slave. I am God's servant. Now, in the Old Testament, this was actually a term of prestige. Uh, the, the, the title servant of God is used to describe Moses and Joshua and Abraham and Jacob and David. Those are some pretty big deals in the Old Testament. These are leaders of God's people. And that puts things in perspective. Does it not? That the leaders of God's people, Paul himself, were studying his word 2,000 years after it was written. He identifies himself just as a mere servant of God. Now, I can say this with certainty, that nobody in this room is as big of a deal as Paul. And if Paul can describe himself as a servant of God, why can't we stoop down that low? Second, Paul also identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This word apostle comes from the word sent, meaning one sent as a messenger, which means that Paul is Jesus's authoritative representative, his his messenger. I think about the Southern Baptist Convention where um, churches will send messengers. And so I think before I got here, I think Janet went to uh, Nashville, and she went to Nashville, and while she was there, her vote um, spoke for us as a church. She was a messenger. And that's kind of the sense here was Paul was sent by Jesus Christ as a representative of Jesus Christ, so much so that when Paul spoke, Jesus spoke. And so since Jesus is God, when Paul spoke, God spoke. 
And that's why we're studying this word today, because we don't think this is just a historical document written by some man named Paul, but actually it's an inspired document written by the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul, meaning this is the very word of God. That's who. But the question this morning is, why? Why is Paul a servant of God? Why is Paul an apostle? What's the purpose of it? We see the purpose right there in that word for. There's the purpose, right? Because. Here's the, the answer of why. The first thing is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul is saying that the reason he is a servant of God, the reason why he is an apostle, is so that people will have faith in Jesus Christ. He is preaching, and he is working, and he is planting churches, and he's evangelizing, he's doing apologetics, he's praying, he's discipling for the sake of the faith of God's elect. What's faith? I read this quote yesterday, J. Gresham Machen, where he says, Christ will do everything or nothing, and the only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on his mercy and trust him for all. That's what faith is, is to completely throw yourself upon Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, you have to do everything for me. That's faith. Faith is completely trusting in Jesus to save you. Okay, so he's, he's doing all this. He's the servant. He's the apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This, 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 this people group, God's elect, um, literally the word elect means chosen, selected ones of God. Now this is simply incredible. You are not a Christian because you snuck in without God noticing. Do you ever feel like that? Like you're really not supposed to be here? Like somehow you got in against God's will? No, we are Christians because God wanted us to be. He chose us. He wanted us. He selected us. That's what it says there. In the faith of God's elect. Now listen, I'm not saying that you deserved to be selected. In fact, you deserve to be rejected, not selected. Behold the amazing grace of God that he selects sinners. Undeserving sinners are chosen by God and shown grace instead of what they deserve. That's what, we, that's what he says here. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's chosen ones. You know, there is, there's almost nothing worse than the feeling of being unwanted and rejected. I think about when a young man asks a girl out on a date and gets told, no thanks. She might even make a scowl. I've gotten the scowl before. No, it's never happened to me before. This is other people. But this is the opposite of that. That feeling of rejection, that feeling of not being wanted. Instead of not being wanted, this verse shows us that we are chosen and selected and wanted by God. God's elect. Now, Paul's motivation here seems a little backwards to us. He's saying, I do all this. I do all this hard work for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, we are tempted from an unbiblical perspective... To say, well, if God has chosen ones, why will we ever work? Why will we ever do anything? Why evangelize? Why, why go on missions? Why do Operation Christmas Child? But that is not Paul's perspective here. 
Paul saying that he is in ministry for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 2.10 where he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That, here's the purpose, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is assuming here that his enduring will lead to the elect obtaining salvation. Do you see that? He endures. He does everything for the sake of the faith of God's elect. There is no, well, I guess it doesn't matter, attitude in Paul. There is no passivity in Paul. There is no laziness in Paul. There is no uh, idea of, well, God will work it out. Or, or, you know, he, no, he goes after it. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we go on mission trips. That's why we pray for the lost. That's why we have a fall festival. That's why we go door to door. That's why we give to the world missions offering is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now I want to be clear here that Paul doesn't have some special secret knowledge of who the elect are. Only God knows that. But what Paul is in ministry for is to produce faith in whoever he can whoever that may be, so that they can obtain salvation in Jesus. And so Paul was on mission. I want to add real quick, how can you know you're the elect of God? What does that mean? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. That's what Paul says. I, I know He's chosen you. How? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This isn't some super secret thing where you had to figure out if you're in or not and there's no way to know. No, instead, you could know God has chosen you if you've repented and believed in the gospel. That's how you know. And if you've repented and believed in the gospel, then your identity this morning is the elect of God. That's really good news. Okay, that's not all he wants. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This is the next goal of Paul's ministry. This is his why. He does everything so that the saints, so the Christians, can have the knowledge of the truth. Now here at Beach Grove, we love the truth. We love the Bible. We love going deep into theology. Just the fact that I can do something like BGU, studying the doctrine of God, and people actually show up, shows us that we care about the knowledge of the truth. And I want to say that we need an emphasis on the truth more than ever right now. Not less. This is not the time to water things down, to make things easier, to make things simpler. No, this is the time to get deeper and deeper into the truth. With the truth being the word of God. And that's what Paul's about here. His why is that he wants to get the knowledge of the truth into the minds and hearts of more and more people. Why is Paul a servant? Why is Paul an apostle? For the knowledge of the truth. For their knowledge of the truth. Notice that. Now, what our temptation is when it comes to truth is we like to take something like that phrase, God's elect. Or we want to take something like the end times, um, eschatology, and we want to make it controversial. We want to make it go on and on and on in an endless way. We think studying the knowledge of the truth is to treat it like two different ways, either trivia or like we're training for the debate club. 
That's how we treat the knowledge of the truth sometimes. That's simply trivia, which means it's just fun facts. We just want to learn the Bible in a way where we can say the shortest verse is, you know, Jesus wept and, you know, it says this word this many times in the Bible just so we can pass some sort of trivia game. Or we treat it like a debate club where we, we focus so much on the knowledge of truth just so we could school other people because there's other people who don't know the Bible as well as us so we're going to study, study, study and then we can come to them and have all these answers. We treat it like it's trivia or the debate club but that is not what the truth of the bible is for look at verse one paul is an apostle for their knowledge the god's elect their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness that's why paul is so focused on the truth that's why paul is so focused on the word paul wants to preach so that the knowledge of the truth will produce godliness. That's what that word which accords with. Truth goes along with godliness. It says the same thing in 1 Timothy 6.3. It says, If anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now often, do we not, we divorce these two concepts. Where some people may be super theological and book smart, and then other people are very godly and street smart. But we don't combine them. We think they're opposite. Either you're going to be brainy or you're going to be obedient. But this divorce is not biblical. Instead, one leads to the other. Real knowledge of the truth of Scripture goes right along with godliness. We study God's Word because 2 Timothy 3.17 says, the word, um, we study the Word of God, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Knowledge of the truth of God's Word produces godliness in us. God's Word equips us to live a life of piety and devotion, marked by the fear of God and obedience to His Word. So this morning, Christian, I want to ask you, is your knowledge of the truth merely trivia or is your study of God's word merely debate club practice or is your knowledge of the truth leading you to godliness so often the most theological people can be the most proud angry cynical divisive people brothers and sisters it should not be this way but our knowledge of the truth must accord with godliness, must, must lead to godliness. And this shows us, on the other side, some of you might enter and be like, I don't need the doctrine of God, I don't need to study God's word, I just want to live a simple life. No, this shows us that theology is extremely practical, that theology makes a difference, that, that truth transforms. No one can say that a study of the truth is irrelevant or a waste of time because knowing the truth leads to a godly life. That's what we see in 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. That might be the trivia or the debate club kind of idea. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So godliness is the best thing for us to pursue. And the way we pursue godliness is to pursue knowledge. Know God's word. Knowing the truth of God makes us like the God of truth. And so we pursue knowing God so we can be godly. That's how it works. So if you want to change, if you want to grow in godliness, study God's word. Okay. Now I know what you're thinking. Matt, you said seven weeks. We're on verse 1. 
Point number two, Paul's hope. We're speeding up, I promise. Verse two through three, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. In. There's a little bit of uncertainty there on that in. Studied it all week. I'm not really sure um, whether it attaches to Paul's apostlehood or if it attaches to his goals for God's elect. And I think, so it's either Paul saying, like, I'm an apostle in hope of eternal life, or he's saying, I'm an apostle for you guys to have faith and knowledge and godliness and hope. And I think it's that second one. And, and that, that's a pretty in-the-details point there, but I want to point it out. Okay, so I think what he's saying here, and either way, both of those are biblical ideas. I mean, obviously Paul had hope for eternal life, and obviously he wants us to have eternal hope, so... It's all good. Okay, so Paul wants God's elect to have faith, knowledge, godliness, and hope of eternal life. Eternal life is what Paul wants Christians to hope for. And this is a key, elementary almost, aspect of Christian theology. That eternal life is offered to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is really good news. Do you ever dwell on those two words, eternal life. Do you ever think about it? Is your hope currently there? Do you ever dwell on the fact that death is the great enemy? And that all good things in this world come to an end? That nothing we enjoy is eternal? That everything ends, everything passes away? But in this gospel... We have the offer of eternal life, eternal joy, eternal happiness in the presence of God forever and ever. Can we just dwell together on the hope of eternal life? I think about how my heart can just explode with love for my wife and my daughter. And to think that I'll feel more than that for everyone. To think I'll have a perfect relationship with God with absolutely nothing standing in the way. No sin, no doubt, no suffering. Just an endless explosion of love and joy and happiness and glory forever and ever, world without end. Eternal life. And this is not wishful thinking. That is not what the biblical word hope means. But no, this is a confident expectation Christians have a confident expectation in endless love and joy and happiness and glory with God forevermore. Eternal life. Paul's hope here is not like, I hope Tennessee beats Georgia. Okay, that is wishful thinking. But it's more like, I hope I have lunch today. I'm fairly certain that will happen. Now, Eternal life is actually more certain to happen than me eating lunch today. How about that? I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm going to have it. I'm already thinking about what I'm going to have. No, I'm, just I'm, I'm here. I'm all here. But I'm fairly certain that's going to happen. But it might not. But the promise of eternal life, the hope that Paul has here, the hope that we have as Christians, is more certain. Why? Look at the text. In hope of eternal life, which God 
who never lies promised before the ages began. You can trust in this hope more than the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Okay, because God never lies. Literally here, the not lying God. God always tells the truth. God is the standard of all truth, the source of all truth, the teller of all truth, and is incapable of falsehood. There's your doctrine of God. We all have friends who flake, right? You make plans with them, and you never know if they're actually going to show up. You show up to the restaurant, you're like, maybe they'll come. Maybe they won't. God is not like that. You know, we have politicians, especially this time of year, making every promise they could possibly make. And we really don't know if they're going to be good on their promise. Our God is not like this. You can absolutely, without a doubt, completely, without a moment's hesitation, bank your life and eternity on the promise of God. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God never lies, and he has promised eternal life to those in Christ. All the good that I just talked about, endless joy, love, peace, happiness, perfect relationship with each other and God, that is a confident expectation. You can be certain on it because God has promised at the end of history, we will be able to say just like Israel did at the end of Joshua not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass that's what we'll say at the end every single one of them God came through God promised it and he never lies God said it and he did it Christian this morning I'm here to tell you to set your hope on eternal life don't set your hope on things that can die, on things that won't last for a billion years. Whatever you're hoping in, ask yourself the question, will this last for a billion years? And if the answer is no, don't put your hope there. Don't don't stake your life on that. But this right here, God's word, verse 2, those five words, in hope of eternal life, that is truth you can stake your life on. That is truth you can stake your eternity on. And this is so needed for, for Titus in ministry. Do you see that? He's in a difficult situation. He needs the hope of eternal life. This is needed when you watch the news. When you're facing wicked evil in your life. When you're facing unbelievable suffering. This is needed when you're simply feeling discontent in life. To get your head above the waters of life in a sense. And know where everything is headed. Eternal life. The hope, the confident expectation of endless joy and glory with God forevermore based upon the never lying promise of God. And this gives us, Christian, a biblical optimism. Not a false, stupid optimism, but a biblical one. This gives us gospel courage. This gives us uh, eternal life leads to this earthly fight where we can say, you know what, I'm going to dig in deep on truth. and I'm going to dig in deep on mission. And I'm going to push through because I have the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1.13 says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. which shows that this is an intentional action of the mind. For this to change your life, for eternal life to change your earthly life, you need the discipline of hope. You need to set your mind on things above. You need to intentionally put your expectation on what's to come. We so easily go through our life in just this default mode of hopelessness, do we not? I mean, you probably went, how often this week did you dwell on the beauty of eternal life? No, normally we dwell on the news and how hard things are and how difficult things are. But the hope of eternal life lifts our eyes upward. 
non-believer in the room, if you're not a Christian, do you not see the beauty of the gospel offer here? Hope of eternal life. And it can be yours today through turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. Okay, so we're talking about eternal life in a sense. Millions and millions of billions of years into the future. But notice, I mean this is a wide-ranging text here. Notice in the text that God makes the promise of eternal life when? Before ages began. Do you see that in verse 2? God who never lies, he promised before the ages began. Literally before times eternal. So God made the promise of eternal life in eternity past. So God has, God has promised eternal life in Christ. That's always been his plan, and he's going to stick to his guns. He isn't changing his promise. And how do we know about this promise, by the way? How do we know the promise of God's eternal life? Look at verse 3. And at the proper time, I love that proper time. I mean, God always does things at the proper time. This is according to his wisdom and plan and providence. He knew exactly when to do this at the proper time. At the right time in the history of the world, look what it says, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. At the right time, God revealed the promise of the gospel through the preaching of Paul and the rest of the apostles. That's what Paul says here. He goes, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted with. God had chosen Paul to be a special instrument of spreading the gospel. We see this in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This shows us simply that Paul isn't making this up. This isn't Paul's wisdom. This isn't Paul's ideas. But this was God's message that Paul was entrusted with. And Paul's preaching is God preaching through Paul. So what's Paul's why? To obey the command of God on his life. God, his Savior, gave him a command. Paul was entrusted with a command to preach the gospel. Paul simply being a good servant. Doing what his master, his Savior, commands of him. And he's a good example to us this morning. To obey God's command on our life no matter what the difficulty or cost. Last point. Paul's gospel in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul designates here who he's writing the letter to. And he's writing the letter to Titus. How could you guess? Who is Titus? First he says, my true child. He means this spiritually. My true child in a common faith. So it's not his actual physical child. So this shows us that Paul must have shared the gospel with Titus. Paul must have shared, um, Paul must have led Titus to the Lord. Paul must have trained up Titus so thoroughly that he was able to do mission work for him. Like a father to a son. A child. This is a great picture of what we talked about last week. Discipleship. Is it not? Paul poured his life into Titus who is now on Crete by himself pouring his life into others. We also see that it's his true child in a common faith. Isn't that interesting? Common faith. Not just my true child in the faith, but my true child in a common faith. And it's important to recognize that this is a circumcised Jew talking to an uncircumcised Greek. This is a radical statement here, saying, hey, we have a common faith. We're united. We're from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different cultures, but we are one in the gospel. 
Also, this is Paul endorsing Titus. As we'll see in, in the coming weeks, there is this Jewish element to the false teaching that Titus is dealing with. And so Paul's making a point here that Titus is legit, like he's actually a Christian. You're just as much of a Christian as me, is basically what Paul's saying to Titus there. And this shows us the point of this letter. The point of this letter is to help Titus in ministry, but Paul is also in this letter talking to the church through Titus. And we'll see that in next week when we talk about Paul's mission. But this letter, in a sense, is to authenticate Titus. Paul would be ta- I mean, Titus would be taking this letter around everywhere saying, look what Paul said. Here's what we're going to do because of what this letter says. And we do the same thing right here. That's what we're going to do for the next seven weeks, by the way. But it authenticates him because he can say, look, you're saying I'm not a real Christian because I'm a Greek. But right here, Paul the Apostle says, I'm a true child in a common faith. Listen to me because I'm representing him as he's representing Jesus. And since he's representing Jesus, it's God's word to us today still. What's Paul's why? Paul does everything he does because of what Jesus has done. The gospel. Look at verse 4. Let's start with the word Savior. Notice that in verse 3, by the command of God our Savior. And then in verse 4, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. God the Father is Savior in verse 3. Christ Jesus is Savior in verse 4. There's a distinction and union. Jesus being our Savior, that phrase, Christ Jesus our Savior, is actually a distinct, unique phrase only found in Titus. This is such a precious truth. Here's what I want to close with, guys. Just, Just stay locked in with me right here at the very end. That God in Christ is our Savior. Our Savior. Savior means one who delivers from grave danger. Brings up images to my mind of a damsel in distress, a hero rushing in, saving her from danger at just the right time. And that's exactly it. Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our Savior. How? You know, it says a Savior is one who delivers from grave danger. And oh, our danger was grave. (laughs) Scarier than any movie you can watch this weekend. We deserve the wrath of God. Eternity in hell. The just punishment for our sins. It was coming upon us and God could have sent us there and have been perfectly just in doing so. Perfectly righteous in doing so. But the Father... Our Savior sent the Son to be our Savior, and He has saved us. We have been delivered from grave danger through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as our substitute in His resurrection from the grave. And this is great news, and we praise Jesus for being our Savior because now instead of justice and hell, we get grace and peace. And that's how he closes this passage. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace means the undeserved love of God towards sinful human beings. It means we've gotten nothing, it's nothing earned, but it's just freely given love. And that grace leads to peace, shalom, wholeness, tranquility. Which means for those of us in Christ, there is no more war. There is no more strife between us and God. We have a perfect relationship with the holy God due to the grace found in Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel 
is that through the grace of God, you can enjoy the peace of God. All to the glory of God. And ultimately, that's Paul's why. He's an apostle because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to preach the gospel for the sake of the faith of the saints, for their knowledge of the truth, for their godliness, for their hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. And he does all that ultimately because of the grace and peace found in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for your grace and peace. God, I pray that we can accept your word. I pray that it can bear fruit in us this morning. Um, God, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. God, who's struggling in their faith. God, I pray that you can, by your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself. God, I pray for every Christian here who is struggling. God, I pray that you can remind them of the hope of eternal life. Um, ultimately, God, I pray this, this short passage can um, produce godliness in us. God, make us a godly people, a godly church, godly families that honor and glorify you in everything we do. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to take some time to respond. So if you guys can um, just take a moment to pray and reflect on the message, see if anything stands out to you, and then we're going to stand and sing as we go.